<laughs> We're in Jeremiah chapter 3 uh, this evening, and uh, we'll see how far we can get. Um, I'm prepared for chapters 3, 4, and 5, but we'll take a look at the time. <laughs> we'll go from there. Um, yeah, so let's have a word of prayer. I'll wait till you guys get there. You're still turning pages, so. Okay. Father, thank you for the night tonight, Lord, this opportunity that we've had just to spend in worship, opening our hearts to you in praise and thanksgiving for all that you've done in our lives and all that you continue to do. When we do worship you and we lift your name on high, you are worthy of all of our praises and we, we do praise you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity to, to open your word. And we pray, Lord, that uh, Lord, as we dig into it, Lord, we find just the truth that you have for the truth that you have for us tonight, Lord, that we can apply to our lives, that we can greater serve you and and uh, and know you better. We commit our time to you now, in Jesus' name, we pray, Amen. So we pick it up, chapter three of Jeremiah. If you recall, Jeremiah was about twenty years old when he began his ministry, and and really a difficult ministry. I mean, he's known as the the weeping prophet. If you've ever had, I think, the the difficult task of maybe sitting at someone's bedside, and you know that they're dying, and and you kind of understand the difficult time that Jeremiah would have. Perhaps after a bad night in the hospital, a, a person passes away in the morning. It's over. But for Jeremiah, he conducted a bedside vigil for a dying loved one for 41 years. 41 years uh, ministry, not of a dying person, but of a dying nation, the nation of Judah. Yet this is what the ministry that God has called him uh, to, to play. Now at first, as you'll see, Jeremiah encouraged the, the Jews to, to repent, to get help, to turn back to God. When it became apparent that they wouldn't, rather than wipe the dust off his feet and move on, God required him to stay and pronounce judgment over the nation of Israel. So we begin now or nation of Judah, rather. We begin now verse 1 of chapter 3. They say, If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. The laws concerning divorce, Deuteronomy chapter 24, when a man divorces a woman, it, then she remarries and divorces the man a second time, she can't go back to the first husband. Yet here God is saying, yet yes, you played the harlot, you, you, you've gone to, to other gods, but I would even still take you back if you return to me. Sure, God, he's a, he's a jealous God and rightfully so. There, there's a sense in which God's jealousy is very appropriate. Now, if the husband says, well, you know, I'm not a jealous man. Well, that, in a sense, it's not really good thing for the wife. I think that, that the wife ought to know that her husband wants her for himself and vice versa. I read a story about a dad that writes, when our second child was on the way, my wife and I attended a pre-birth class aimed at couples who had already had at least one child. The instructor raised the issue of breaking the news to the older child. and went like this. Some parents, she said, Tell the older child, we love you so much we decided to bring another child into this family. But think about that, ladies. What if your husband came home one day and said, Honey, I love you so much I decided to bring home another wife. One of the women spoke up immediately. Does she cook? 
<laughs> there is a, a thing, there is an unhealthy jealousy where a husband won't let the wife out of the house unless she has a bag over her head. But that's not what, what we're talking about here. You know, we're, we're talking about how a husband ought to honor and treasure his wife and not want anything to come in between them, anything to interfere with that relationship that they have. To be jealous of anything that would take away the relationship that you have with each other. That's the way God felt about Judah. And, and his jealousy towards these, these false gods that they worship. And that's the way God feels about us. Now look at verse 2. He says, Lift up your eyes to the, to the desolate heights and see. Where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness. And you have polluted the land with your harlot trees and your wickedness. Now, the, the, the picture here, the, the, the desolate heights were the hills in which they committed this spiritual adultery uh, with these pagan gods. And God compares his people to a prostitute working the street corner. She'll, she'll sell herself to anybody. I mean, the, the, the children of Israel have been sleeping with every god they can get their hands on. They become equal opportunity worshipers, you know. And they just, you know, they don't have just one or two idols. They, they have just a, a closet full of them. God asks his people here to, to look up to the heights and it's the high places where the altars, where these gods are being built. And look, this is wrong, he says. The, 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 the worship of Baal and Asherah, it, it included the sex, sex with the temple prostitutes, you know, at these hilltop shrines. In fact, according to one commentary, uh, commentator, the phrase laying with men in verse 2 is translated ravished. It's an obscene word for sexual violence. So although God, God's People have been looking for a good time. They've been getting raped. It's a worship of false gods are being abused. Always, always happens that way. Violence and destruction comes along with, with the things of the world and, and getting involved in the things of the world and, 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 and away from the Lord. Look at verse 3. Therefore the showers have been withheld and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. So as a result of their unfaithfulness, God... You know, allowed a drought to happen. God withheld rain, hoping that they would, they would wake up, that they would see, hey, you know, we need to turn back to the Lord. And then we read of the harlot's forehead uh, with the mark, and, and that really was a mark the prostitutes would place on their forehead. It was a, you know, meant for an advertisement, you know, open for business. Jeremiah here saying, even though God has judged you by not allowing it to rain, you don't care. You're not ashamed of, of worshiping these other gods at all. You're, 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 you're proud of it. They're wearing the, the harlot's tattoo. Verse 4. Will you not from this time cry to me, My father, you are the guide of my youth? Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. It's kind of hard to understand. Let me read this to you in, in the New Living Translation. Yet you say to me, Father, you have been my guide since my youth. Surely you won't be angry forever. Surely you, can't for, you can forget about it. So you talk, but you keep on doing all the evil you can. I think God is, God is saying, yeah, you kind of got the nerve to call me Father and expect me to not get angry when you keep on sinning over and over and over again. Forget about it. You know, it says, yeah, I like that in the New Living Translation. You know, just forget about it. It's going to happen. You know, it, 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 you're sinning. That's it, the result of this. Verse 6. Now, verse 6 starts the beginning of a new message talking about how Judah hadn't learned a thing from seeing Israel to the north uh, already taken into captivity, get judged. Verse 6 says, The Lord said, 
also to me in the days of Josiah the king. Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery. I'd put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. The Lord is saying, look, look at Israel to the north. Look what they did. They committed this, this, this harlotry. They were, they were doing the same thing Judah's doing. And he says, now, you know, the northern kingdom of Israel, they've been destroyed. They've been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. They were judged for, for the places of worship that they set up on the mountains and the hills and the worship of Ashtaroth and the goddess of fertility and all sorts of, of sexual immorality involved with that. The Lord is saying, that's what happened to the northern kingdom. They didn't learn it. You're not learning a thing. You're not seeing it. It's, it's going to happen to you too. You know, it's been said that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to relive it. And that's what we see here. The Lord continues, verse 9. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. You know, evidently Judah thought her unfaithfulness to God was, was no big deal. You know, it's casual harlotry. You know, she assumed that, that she had an open marriage. She thought she could still be married to the Lord despite her multiple affairs and late night rendezvous with these, these false gods. God's saying there's nothing casual about it. See, he expects his people to be fully committed to him. I think some people think, well, I can just go on a sin binge and, and, and for the weekend and, 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 you know, no big deal, you know. God, God will, will, you know, kind of look over it. He won't, he won't you know, hold me accountable for that. And, and, and God thinks otherwise. He calls a backslider's outings with this world seriously, serious infidelity, not casual harlotry. Well, it goes on, look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord. For I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. See here, the Lord is, is charging His people with backsliding. You know, the word backsliding is, is, is used seven times in this chapter, and that's more than half the number of times in the entire book. In Jeremiah, we find these words more often than in the rest of the Bible put together. He and Hosea, they, they like to use the, the word a lot. Backsliding you know, doesn't simply mean to slide backwards. I think we always think, of, well, he's backsliding, he's going, going backwards. But, but backsliding also is a refusal to go God's way. It's a refusal to listen to the Lord. You know, it's saying, no, I, I know you're, you're leading me this way, I'm not going to do it. Well, then you're backsliding. Now, even the northern kingdom here has been wiped out. There's still a remnant living in the land. In fact, Josiah had even gone into the northern kingdom and removed some of the altars that Jeroboam had set up years before. But again, the Lord is saying, if you just admit you're backslidden, admit your sin, admit your guilt, confess it, which means to turn from it, I'll forgive you, I'll, I'll take you back. 
Verse 13 again, only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. Now, Proverbs 28 13 tells us, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. We know 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The Lord is saying, just, just acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your iniquity, confess it to me, that I can forgive you. It says in verse 14, For I am married to you, I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. You know, God loves His people. And again, our relationship with God is, is like a marriage relationship. We looked at this a little bit on Sunday. And He wants that marriage relationship to be based on love. And here, despite all that the northern kingdom have done and the way she sinned, God still invited her back home. Now, these next few verses speak of a day yet in the future when Israel will be reconciled to her husband. When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, the Hebrews will no longer be two kingdoms but one. And come to Zion. Look at verse 15. He says, And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. See, a pastor after God's heart is one that feeds the people the knowledge and understanding of God and His Word. I think of, of Jesus when He talked to Peter. He said, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus said to him three times, if you love me, feed my sheep. That should be a pastor's top priority. You know, I, I know pastors wear a lot of hats, but his most important task is to feed God's people with God's Word. Otherwise, don't call yourself a pastor. You know, call yourself a motivational speaker or something else. But it's got to be the, the Word of God. We'll look at verse 16. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. Now in those days is a reference to the millennial kingdom. All the way through the book of Jeremiah, we find these, these sudden rays of light. Now, have you ever been out on a, on a cloudy day and, and all of a sudden the, the, the clouds part a little bit and then this is the sun is shining through and it's just, just beautiful. You see the rainbow. And this is how it's going to be throughout Jeremiah. And I know sometimes we, we get this, this doom and gloom and judgment, but every now and then the clouds kind of come apart and this, the sky opens up and it's, oh yeah, this, this is glorious. And prophecies about the future. And here the Lord is saying, during the millennial kingdom, the Ark of the Covenant will be no more. Now understand, Jerusalem was the heart of the nation of Judah. The temple was the heart of Jerusalem, and the Ark of the Covenant was the heart of the temple. It was God's centerpiece. God's presence and glory rested over this two-foot-by-four-foot gold-plated box known as the Ark. It was a replica model of, of God's throne in heaven. And because of the Ark's importance over the centuries, this passage has been a, a puzzle to, to Jewish scholars. They can't imagine a day when the, when the ark will no longer be significant, when no one will visit it or even think about it. Even today, serious speculations revolve around the ark and, and its whereabouts. You know, archaeologists, they, they want to find it. Some people believe that the sudden appearance of the ark will be the final push to rebuild the third temple. I read of rabbis uh, over the years, such as the late Yehuda Getz and Shlomo Gorin, one on record saying that they had seen the ark in the caverns under the temple mount. And they believe that it's kept there until just the time is right. There's all sorts of theories about the ark of the covenant. In the apocryphal book, Second Maccabees, and, and, and you know, a legend has it that, are, that prior to the fall of Jerusalem, prior to the temple's destruction, Jeremiah hid the ark of the covenant in the, uh, a cave on Mount Nebo near the Dead Sea. 
It says that Jeremiah was protecting the ark in, in the enemy's hands and that when his servants went to mark the spot, Jeremiah told them, no, the Lord will return at its appropriate time. And, and, and so it's because of this story, a lot of discoverers, a lot of these archaeologists have, have combed Mount Nebo in search of the missing ark. Other people have searched for the ark in the caves of Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Still others believe the ark is in a, a church in Ethiopia. Now, we all know the ark is stuffed away on a shelf somewhere in the Smithsonian Institute where Indiana Jones put it, you know, years ago. We know that's where it's at. But uh, in any case, <laughs> Jeremiah here says that, the, that one day the ark will become a forgotten thing, an insignificant thing, a trivial object. I mean, think about it. If the ark suddenly appeared today, I mean, it would be revered. It would be probably even worshipped which I think may be why God is keeping it hidden. The point that the Lord is making is that in the millennium, the, the ark will no longer be important. Uh, I mean, even today, it's not important. It says, It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. Why? Why would it be so glorious that it would overshadow, or what would be so glorious that it would overshadow and dwarf even the sacred ark? Obviously, it's Jesus. It's our Lord. Jesus returns and reigns from Jerusalem. The symbol of God's presence, the ark will be replaced with God's actual presence, His Son, Jesus Christ. Now verse 17. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 tells us that during the kingdom age, Jesus' thousand-year reign on the earth, people will come to Jerusalem annually to worship the Messiah. Everybody's going to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Verse 18, In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. It's just a, a, a glorious prophecy. It's like this little, little gem. It's a restoration of the nation. Now, you know, this prophecy could refer to the restoration of the nation after the Babylonian captivity. It could refer to, you know, the restoration of the nation, uh, you know, now, modern Israel. But more than likely, it's a reference to the millennial kingdom that Jesus is going to set up uh, on the earth, thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, verse 19. But I said, How could I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the host of nations? And I said, You shall call me my father, and not turn away from me. Now, in the Old Testament, the famous, you know, saints were called servants of God. Abraham was called God's friend. But none of them called God their father, and he didn't call them his sons. Yet when Jesus came on the scene, things changed. Over 70 times, Jesus refers to God as, as father, and God called Jesus his son. Remember Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Even Jesus taught us to pray, what, our, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As we come into this relationship, born again relationship through Jesus Christ, we now have an intimate relationship with God as our Father. But you see, God wanted to treat the Jews as, as a father, and, and like, like they're his sons. In fact, he did treat them like sons. He gave them a desirable land, he, a beautiful heritage. You know, and all he wanted in return was their, their loyalty. He wanted them to, to stay at home, call him father, and, and really mean it. That's the way God wanted it to be. But now, things, that's not how it turned out. You know, God wanted a son like, like Beaver Cleaver, and he got Bart Simpson, you know, I guess. Look at verse 20. 
Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard on a desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. See, Israel vainly turned to the hills and, and hoped for help from other gods. But the big lesson God was trying to teach them is that, that teachers, that, that a nation's security is found in their faithfulness to, to the one true God. I pray that we understand that as a nation as well. Verse 24. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in shame and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of our Lord. Okay, chapter 4, the Lord says, here's what you need to do. Verse 1, if you return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved, and you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. In other words, if you return to me, you just won't, there just won't be words the Lord lives, but it'll be coming from your heart. Oh, yes, the Lord lives. Verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Now, fallow ground is, is, is uh, what happens when you stop planting it, when you start turning it over. It gets real dry and it gets really, really hard. And, and the Lord is saying, break up that, that fallow ground. Quit trying to, 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 to grow you know, fruit among the thorns that, that have come up on that, that, that fallow ground. I think Jesus spoke of, of the same thing when he gave the warning about the thorns in Matthew, Matthew 13, being the cares of this world. And now that can happen to each one of us if we're not careful. We can get, get too caught up in the worldly stuff and it chokes out the, the growth of the Word of God in our lives. I think sometimes our hearts have to be broken from time to time. Because we can get too complacent and the things of God don't penetrate very far. We need to let God at times, you know, break our hearts and have that true repentance over sin and, and grief over our sins and turning from sin and staying away from the worldliness, allowing God to do that work. So the Lord says in verse 4, Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil you are doing. Okay, this portion of Jeremiah's prophecy really ends with a solemn warning. I mean, you've heard the invitation to come back home to God, but if you refuse, there's nothing left but judgment. In the same way that there are people that, that have heard the free offers of Jesus Christ in the gospel, but they think, well, you know, God, God's grace allows me just to ignore my sin. Yet we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, 26, for if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We're told there that in Hebrews 10, 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the Lord here ends with a warning, then he goes on in verse 5. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together, and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Set up the standard towards Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. So here, Jeremiah begins to warn 
of this imminent invasion. In ancient times, when a, uh, an army was about to attack, the surrounding suburbs would move into the city and they would, they, they, within the shelter of its walls. And, and he's calling them to do that, just that. See, Jeremiah has become the, the Jewish Paul Revere here. He's racing, racing through the streets shouting, the Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are coming. Take cover, verse 7. The lion has come up from the thicket and the destroyer of the nations is on his way. He's gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitants. Daniel chapter 7, around the same time, but 900 miles away, Daniel saw a vision of this invading nation. Babel was symbolized as a lion. Verse 8. For this, close yourself with sackcloth, lament and well, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish, and the heart of the princes, the priests shall be astonished, and the prophets shall wonder. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Now, realize, the Bible is the right record of what was said. But sometimes what people say in the Bible is actually wrong, if that makes sense. I mean, here's a good example of this. Jeremiah here says, God deceived the people. He promised them peace when war was on the horizon, but that's not what God did. False prophets have come on the scene during this time, spreading lies, saying, uh, there's going to be peace. No worry, you guys are fine. But, but uh, that didn't come from God. But God let these false prophets tell these people what they wanted to hear because they loved the lie. So God gave them these false prophets, but, but God himself had told the truth. Verse 11. At that time it will be said to, these, to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness towards the daughter of my people, not to fan or to cleanse. A wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. So God's predicting a desert storm and his army coming, not, not to cool or to cleanse, but to destroy. Verse 13, Behold, he shall come up like clouds and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. And again, God's judgment is just moving quickly. They would come as quick as the clouds move through the sky and, and their chariots as fast as whirlwinds and their horses faster than eagles. And, and Jeremiah said, Woe to us, for we are plundered. It's going to be unstoppable. Verse 14. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims affliction from Mount Ephraim. Make mention to the nations, yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and raise a voice against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field, they are against her all around because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. Verse 18, your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness because it is bitter because it reaches to your heart. The Bible says, rest assured your sin will find you out in Numbers 32, 23. Because God's people had broken his heart, now he's, he's breaking theirs. See, God loves us too much to allow us to prosper in our sin and to allow us to keep going forward in disobedience. That's why we're told in Hebrews that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Hebrews twelve six. Now, Jeremiah sees the big picture and he can no longer hold his emotions in check. His heart begins to ache. Look at verse 19. Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war, destruction upon destruction is cried, 
For the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. I mean, Jeremiah knows what God is saying about judgment and how destruction is coming. He goes on in verse 21. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. <laughs> you know, he says the people are great when it comes to doing the wrong thing. But they're clueless when it comes to doing the right thing. Paul in the book of Romans says, we, we need to have it the other way around. We as people should be great when it comes to doing the right things, but clueless when it comes to doing the, the, the wrong things. He puts it this way in Romans sixteen nineteen: For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Now just not to know those things that are evil. It simply means we don't need to be involved in it with evil things to know they're evil. We ought to be ignorant. We need to be dumb about them. When someone you know, your work with tells a dirty joke, you know, we should be happy when we don't get it. <laughs> we haven't got a clue what they're saying because we we're not familiar with that stuff. Verse 23. I beheld the earth and indeed it was without form and void and the heavens. They had no light. Now, this is really a flashback to the opening uh, act of creation. We're told in Genesis 1, 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So it seems that God, God is, is, is going to return to the land of Judah to the same shapeless darkness as it was in the beginning of creation. I think this picture is pretty clear, but it's also terrifying. Some Bible commentaries consider these verses the most forceful and menacing of all the prophetic writings. I mean, read properly, it should make the, the hair in the back of our neck stand up. I mean, imagine the judgment that is coming. He goes on in verse 24, I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled. And all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I, I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all the cities were broken down in the presence of the Lord by His fierce anger. It's like the creation in reverse. When God created the earth in Genesis, He started with a world that had no form and no, it was void. Darkness was on the deep and then God added light and He guided the ground and the plants and the birds and the beasts and finally man. But here it goes the other way around when He's judging. No man, no birds, or the fruitland is no more. Everything's broken down. The reverse, verse creation. Verse 27, For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. I think at the end of the age, most of the, plant, most of the planet is going to be destroyed. There will be a whole lot of collateral damage in God's judgment, but the earth's judgment won't be complete. God will be, begin a massive restoration. But here Jeremiah says God will bring the earth to the brink of, of annihilation. Verse 28, For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken. I have purpose and will not relent, nor I turn back from it. Again, it's obvious from the scope of Jeremiah's prophecy has gone beyond the Babylonian invasion to events that will occur at the end of the age. I think this is what often happens in Bible prophecy. The prophet starts with a local, immediate judgment, but the vision spills over and looks to the future, to the, to the end of time, when these cataclysmic events will, will really take place and really rock, shake the whole earth. Look at verse 29. The whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and, and bowmen. They shall go into thickets and climb up on the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man shall dwell in it. And when you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, 
Though you enlarge your eyes with pain, in vain you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. Babylon will invade Judah because Judah had been worshipping the, these Babylonian gods. The Jews committed spiritual adultery with the idols of the East. Now Jeremiah is saying, when this army comes upon you, doesn't matter how dressed up you are, how flirtatious you look, you're going to be, be crushed by their judgment. Their adulterous lovers will turn on them. Verse 31. For I have heard a voice of a woman in labor, the anguish as of her who brings forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself. She spreads her hand saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is weary because of murderers. See, Judah will weep loudly like a mother in labor pain. Same phrase we read throughout the Bible when it comes to the end times and the great tribulation and the second coming. When judgment comes, it's going to be sharp. It's going to be sudden. Okay, chapter 5. I think we got time for it. Verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there's anyone who executes judgment who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. I mean, doesn't that just remind you of Genesis chapter 18 and Abraham's conversation with God over the destiny of Sodom and Gomorrah? Lord, if I could just find 50 righteous people, would you, would you spare the city? I'll spare the city. I, I would. That's when Abraham, you know, his, his Jewish bargaining skills kicked in. He haggled the Lord. Uh, how about 45, Lord? Uh, how about 40? Do I hear 30, 20, 10? Abraham stopped at 10. Here God says, I'll spare Jerusalem if one, you can find one righteous man. God would have done that. He would destroy Jerusalem. See, God doesn't want to destroy his people. He, he gets no pleasure from judging, judging his people. He'd far rather bless his people. Verse 2. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. Again, these people, they're mouthing the right words, but it's not coming from their hearts. I think we we see that today, you know, uh, someone, you know, they have a business, and they throw a fish on the, on the back of their car, and you think, oh, they're Christians, you know, and, and oh, praise the Lord, brother, and, and then they rip you off for some job they're doing in your house. You know, they, they have the words, but, but it's not, you know, in their hearts. Jeremiah goes on in verse 3. Oh, Lord, are not your eyes on, on the truth. You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They, they refuse to change. It says they have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Therefore I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. Jeremiah said, listen, maybe because they're just common people. Maybe because they're, they're poor and they just don't get it, you know, that they don't understand. He says, you know, I think I'm going to go to the educated people. I'll take it to, to those that are supposed to know the ways of the Lord, the, the theologians, the seminarians, the Bible college graduates. Surely they will listen. Look at verse 5. I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. He found that the more you know, educated they were, the more rebellious they had become. One commentator put it this way, when you bring spiritual truth into an academic setting, it becomes susceptible to intellectualism, smugness, and arrogance. And I agree. Just look at the History Channel. You know, and they, they do the special, you know, uh, stories on Noah's Ark or Sodom and Gomorrah, and suddenly the Bible is not true, and, oh, you really can't believe this, and they got all, we've interviewed this guy, and he's got all these letters after his name, and all these degrees, and, and, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Jeremiah says, nope, not that many of these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. They've turned from the Lord as well. 
And because they won't listen, he says, look at verse 6. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the desert shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions. Everyone neighed, neighed after his neighbor's wife. God says, I bless these people. I care for them. And rather than them responding to my love, they followed after their other gods and, and just as foolishly as animals follow after their own instincts. Morality, purity, holiness was not a priority. They were ready to, to jump into bed with the next willing partner. It sounds like our world today, you know, whatever feels good, just do it. God says, if you want to act like animals, then know this, that in the animal world, you're going to just be another animal's lunch eventually. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. How shall I pardon you for this? Verse 9. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Go upon your walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, It is not he. Neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see a sword or famine. And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Again, false prophets came on the scene, denying all of Jeremiah's warnings, saying, Oh, you know, that's not the Lord. God promises peace and safety. There's not going to be judgment. I mean, isn't that what we're hearing today? In the last is, oh, peace and safety. God's not going to judge, you know, but we know sudden destruction is going to come. Well, here in Jeremiah, God says that they're full of hot air. They're like the wind. Judgment is coming. Verse 14. Therefore, therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar. O house of Israel, says the Lord, it is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty men, and they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. Babel was the first nation founded by that notorious man named Nimrod. And at the time, God wanted them to spread out and, and, and not gather together. And, and Nimrod, you know, founded the, the Babel in disobedience to God. God had to change their languages. And, and the Lord said, these, these are the guys that are going to come and get you. And they speak a language you don't understand. They're, they're quivers, an empty tomb. They're mighty men. In other words, their arrows never miss. Their, their, their Babylon's victory will be extensive. Nevertheless, verse 18, in those days, says, Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. <laughs> He's saying, yeah, judgment is severe. It won't be complete. See, God is not through with the nation of Israel. He's made a promise to the Hebrews that are eternal and he will fulfill them. Verse 19, and it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them. Just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in the land that is not yours. Since you love your foreign gods so much, now you're going to spend time with all these foreign gods. Verse 20, declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. 
Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they, they cannot pass over it. Do you see what the Lord is saying here? Don't you understand who I am, the Lord says. I created this world. I created the oceans, the sand, that they can't go past the sand. The power that I have. I can just snap my fingers and you're gone. See, the problem was Judah no longer feared the Lord. They didn't have a fear for the Lord. They took God and His blessings all for granted. Verse 23. He says it. These people have a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. No fear from the Lord. They didn't trust him to bring the rain or the harvest and as a result of the sin, God couldn't bless them. He couldn't send rain. He couldn't, he couldn't give them a bountiful harvest. I mean, they, they experienced the drought and, and, and no harvest and all this is judgment. And it's like they're going, what's going on? How do, we don't understand. Reminds me of a story about a woman's husband that had been slipping in and out of a coma for several months, yet uh, she had stayed by his bedside every single day. One day, when he finally came out of it, he motioned for her to come near her. As she sat by him, he whispered, eyes full of tears, You know what? You have been with me all through the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you stayed right here. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. You know what? What, dear? She gently asked, smiling as her heart began to fill with warmth. I think you're bad luck, he says. See, God was saying to the people here, that's not bad luck. I've been, been trying to get your attention. I've been trying to help you to see, to turn from your sin and turn back to me. God wants nothing but good things for us. But our sin keeps us from receiving them. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. It's just a reminder to all of us to keep ourselves in that place where you're able to receive the good things that God wants to have for us. I read a quote today that said, Stay under the spout where the glory comes out. I like that. Finally, verses 26 to 31. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men as the cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper. And the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An astonishing and a horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Just a, a sobering verse here. We, we get angry, you know, at the, the crooked preacher who, who scams for money, the pastor who rules his church with an iron grip and, and misuses God's flock. But who is it that allows these leaders to get their way with his crimes? It, it's the folks who sit under the leadership who throw the money at these so-called ministries. And I think not, not many, you know, not everyone is naive about this. Some, some of these, these people, you know, they do it because they've been promised a hundredfold return. Oh, if you give this much and you're going to get this much back. And their own greed has blinded them to the pastor's greed. 
And they allow themselves to be abused because they're in awe of the pastor's celebrity and their involvement in this ministry. It just feeds on, on their own ego. And when corruption flourishes in the church, it's not only because of the evil leaders. They haven't accomplished it. It says here in verse 31, The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. They love it. They, they, they like getting all excited about this type of thing going on. There's been a saying that, that, that maybe you've heard, people get the leadership they deserve. And it's true. I mean, if, you know, if you go to a church where you've got a manipulative and money-hungry pastors, they're only part of the problem. The ones that, that, that are part of that, I mean, the tolerant, that's really the bigger problem. See, Jeremiah, he's just laying it on the line here, what's going on here. And he's wanting them to listen. God's wanting to speak through Jeremiah for the people to listen. But they're just not listening. Now, we're going to uh, continue one more chapter, not tonight, in two weeks. Because chapters 1 through 6 are Jeremiah's first five years of ministry. He started when he was around 20 years old. And so, so we got five years of ministry here. We're going to pick up chapter 6 in two weeks. Next Wednesday, we have our, our pre-Thanksgiving night uh, praise night where we just we, we, uh, worship the Lord and, and we say what everyone's thankful for. And then the last Wednesday of the month that would normally be our prayer, praise, and communion night, we're going to pick up Jeremiah chapter 6. And so just kind of switch it around a little bit, but that will be next time. So let's pray.